So as we said, we're going to be in John chapter 21 today, so you can turn there if you have a Bible with you. But as we said last week, we saw at the end of John chapter 20, the purpose of John's writing is this. He says that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So in these 20 chapters that we've read through this whole year, we've read about Christ. We've seen him perform miracles and signs and wonders. We've heard his words and his teachings. And we've seen him go to the the cross and return three days later, resurrected and appear alive and well. And now we turn to John chapter 21, where we have this epilogue to the story that John offers to us to read here. And in it, we see a few things, most notably the ongoing mission of Jesus' disciples to the world. So it comes to us here in two parts, and I'm going to read the first part here together. This is John 21, 1 through 14. Would you stand with me this morning for the reading of God's word? Beginning in verse 1, John writes this. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathanael from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net onto the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. So the disciples, led by Peter, notice that Peter's singled out here as the one with the idea, and they follow him. The disciples, they've returned to their old way of life. They're out fishing again. Now, when Jesus first addresses them in this story, he uses this Greek word paideon. When he says, friends, haven't you any fish? That word for friends is paideon. It's like you're hitting the Colorado coach in the face with a pie. Pie Dion. Like three of you got that. A little bit more than first service, but Pie Dion essentially means young boy or lad to indicate youth or immaturity. So it's like he's calling them sport. Hey, sport, did you catch any fish? Because kind of like little children, they appear to be lost, having gone back to their former way of life. And don't the disciples here remind you of many Christians in our culture today? You see, we aren't just here on earth killing time and waiting for the kingdom. We live here to present the Lord to a lost and dying world who are perishing due to their sin. And we only have a limited amount of time to do that. So every second, every hour, every day counts. 
Christ pulled the disciples away from the net three years before, and now they've settled into their old lifestyle again. And like some of us, they're too busy with the world to get busy with the ministry that God has given to them. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So Jesus isn't going to let them become satisfied in fishing the sea when he has clearly placed a calling on them to become fishers of men. So the disciples spend the entire night fishing, and they catch nothing. They spend the whole night trying to catch fish, and they catch not a one. You think that's a coincidence? You think their frustrations in pursuing this earthly life were bad luck on a given night? Or perhaps Jesus was restraining their success because he did not want them to become satisfied in something less than what they'd been called to? So they obey this stranger on the beach and they throw their net out onto the right side of the boat and the fish start flooding into the net. And John is the first one to have this moment of deja vu. He remembers a similar encounter from Luke chapter 5, and he's the first to shout out, it's the Lord. So Peter jumps out and swims to the shore, and the rest of them bring the boat back. And when they get to the beach, there's fish cooking on the fire. Hmm, I wonder where that fish came from. Because the boat that has 153 fish in it has not yet made it back to the shore. And the text tells us they've been fishing all night and they didn't catch any fish, but yet they get back to the beach and there's fish cooking on the fire. And then Peter goes back to get the net with the fish and they count it out. And the number of fish here is oddly specific. If you look in your text in verse 11, it says that they caught 153 fish. There's a lot of speculation as to why this number is mentioned and as to its significance because it doesn't really fit into any sort of biblical pattern. Now, a pretty good rule of thumb is that when something doesn't fit into any sort of biblical pattern or significance is let's not make one up ourselves, okay? It's a pretty good rule of thumb. That's what we call eisegesis. It's a big word, but essentially it means when we try to fit our own ideas We read into the text our own ideas that aren't really there. That's eisegesis. So I think the reason John mentions the number 153 is not because of the significance of the number, but because of the significance of the catch. You see, most fishermen don't just sit around counting out how many fish that they caught when they're fishing with nets. They don't usually waste their time with that. No, but they took the time to count out the fish this time. And they got 153 This was a large and significant catch of fish, so much so that they took the time to count it out. Jesus had provided more fish than they could possibly have eaten by themselves. And then in verse 13, Jesus, he breaks the bread and the fish and gave it to them. But right before that, in verse 12, it says, None of them dared ask him, for they knew that it was Jesus. And you think, okay, well, if that's true, then why does John even say that? Why does he include that in the passage? If they knew it was Jesus, why does he have to say they knew it was Jesus? It's like when I write a a love letter to my wife, I don't say, dear sweetest Caroline, I don't, by the way, I don't have to ask that it's your name. I don't need to know your name. I know that it's Caroline. I don't start it like that because I've known her my whole life. I, I know who she is. I don't preface it that way. And in the text, John doesn't say, oh, they all knew that it was Peter that jumped into the boat. They all knew that it was John who said, oh, it's the Lord. Why does he include that about Jesus if he doesn't say that to everybody else? They know who each other are. They've been living together for years. I think the reason that he includes this comment is because the physical appearance of the resurrected Jesus is so different that you might not recognize him on the basis of his physical appearance alone. 
They only recognize him based on the familiarity of his words and his actions. So when he says something or does something that they recognize, well, then they know him by his voice or his demeanor. So when he tells them to throw the net into the water and the, all these fish flood in, John sees something and he says, oh, it's, it's the Lord. I've been here before. Or he breaks bread and gives it to them. Verse 13, they've been in this seat before. He's breaking bread and passing it out for them to eat. They know him. And what comes next is huge. So let's keep reading. This is verse 15. It says, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This is the one who leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. This is the word of God. Man, I love John chapter 25, verse 25. Excuse me, John chapter 21, verse 25. That is one of my favorite verses in all the scripture. Jesus did a whole lot of other stuff. And if every single one of them were written down, man, I don't think the whole world could contain all the books that would be written. And when I come to the end of reading John 21 and thus come to the end of reading the gospel of John, one of the things that blows me away is the reminder that this text is divinely inspired. Its book is written by John, but these words are God's words. And I'm reminded of that because when I read this chapter, we're, we're brought on a journey of recalling the entire gospel as we walk through John 21. Listen to all the parallels that are present to the rest of the story that we find just in this one chapter that we've now read all of this morning. Listen to these. Verses 1 through 7, darkness giving way to light, just like in chapter 1. Verse 2, collecting the first disciples. These are all the same guys collected in chapter 1. In verse 2, the town of Cana is mentioned, the same place where Jesus performs his first miracle, turning water into wine. In verse 3, the disciples are alone on a boat at night, just like in chapter 6. Verses 4 and 12, the sheep know the shepherd only by his voice, like in chapter 6. Verse 9, Peter's at a fire with Jesus nearby, like he is at the trial in chapter 18. In verse 9 as well, Jesus feeding the disciples with bread and fish miraculously, as he does in chapter 6. 
Verse 13, Jesus taking bread and breaking it for his disciples like he does at the Last Supper in chapter 13. In verse 14, Jesus' resurrection is mentioned as it is in chapter 20. Verse 15, Jesus calling his followers sheep as in chapter 6. In verses 15 through 17, like we just read, we have Peter's three statements of allegiance paralleling the three denials in chapter 18. Verse 16, Peter's original name is used, Simon. Jesus calls him Simon throughout this passage as he's gone back to his former way of life. It's the first time he calls him that since chapter 1 when they first meet. Verse 18, there's a veiled reference to a coming crucifixion. This time it's for Peter, but in chapter 12, Jesus makes a veiled reference to his own coming crucifixion. In verse 19, Jesus calling Peter to follow him, just like he does on that first day when he meets Jesus in chapter 1. Verse 20, John is described as the disciple whom Jesus loved, just as he is in the Last Supper in chapter 13. Verse 22, the return of Jesus is mentioned, as he himself says in chapter 14, I'm coming back to you. And in verse 24, the testimony of John as a true witness. Back to chapter 20, as John's purpose for writing, like we talked about at the beginning of this morning. And I'm sure there are several more that I did not mention. Now, I take the time to point these out. Because it's important to remember that John didn't just get to the end of his life and write down all the stuff he could remember about Jesus. He didn't just get to the end of life and just grab a pen and say, oh, well, that Jesus guy, let me just see what I can think of. No, this thing that you hold in your hand, this is the living and breathing word of God. Inspired and written through the Holy Spirit. Using John as a vessel, yes, but these are God's words. And therefore they are truth. This is Jesus weaving the story together for us. And this is a pivotal moment setting the stage for the mission of the church. So let's circle back to verse 15 when Jesus asks, Do you love me more than these? Now there are three different things I think he could be referring to with the word these. And there are some very well-educated, respected, super smart people that think all three of these things. So I want to lay all three of them out real quick. The first thing is perhaps he's asking, do you love me more than these? Maybe he's talking about your brothers. Do you love me more than you love them? Meaning the other disciples present. That's one option. The second is that perhaps he's asking, do you love me more than they love me? Do you love me more than these? Because this is maybe a callback to Mark chapter 14 and Matthew 26, where Peter is mentioned having said to Jesus, man, even if everybody else abandons you, Lord, I never will. And of course, we know that Peter's been humbled by now because he's denied Jesus three times, but he's been forgiven by God and Jesus is reinstating him as we speak. So perhaps Jesus is asking him, do you love me more than they do? And lastly, the third option is that perhaps Jesus is referring to the fish. When he says, do you love me more than these, he's pointing to the sack of 153 fish that are sitting on the beach next to them. He's talking about Peter's way of life. Do you love me more than what you've devoted your life to previously? Do you love me more than what otherwise might fulfill you? Do you love me more than this record-setting haul of 153 fish that you just caught? So, which one is it? I said before, there's really smart people who think all three things. And I think the reason that there's not a general consensus on this is because there's really not a wrong answer. I think the answer is yes. The question within the question is, Peter, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than anything else? You said that you'll love me even when others don't. 
Will you love me more than those you love most? Are you ready to set aside your fishing business, your lifestyle, and the security that it provides for you in order to serve the Lord? And of course, Peter responds quickly, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And this question is a good one to ask ourselves as well. Do you love God more than anything? Are you willing to give up security, comfort, Are you willing to give up those things, your former way of life, to follow Christ? Will you love him more than those people and those things that you love most? And perhaps what's even harder, will you love him even when others don't? It's a tough question to ask ourselves. And when Jesus asks this of Peter... There's a lot happening, like we said in Mark 14 and Matthew 26, when Peter makes this statement, Lord, I'll love you and I'll never abandon you even when everybody else does. And of course, Peter, back in John 18, just a few chapters before, has denied Jesus three times as he's going to the cross. So what's happening here is Jesus is re-restoring Peter. And in doing so, he's commissioning him to carry out his role as pastor. So three different times he asks Peter, do you love me? And when Peter responds affirmatively, Each time, Jesus responds by saying, feed my sheep. And what he's saying is to take care of my people. Feeding my sheep is a metaphor for teaching people the word of God. Tend the flock. Peter is being commissioned to lead the church, to teach people the truth about Jesus and to pastor the church when Jesus leaves. So he's saying, Peter, not only are you forgiven, but I'm restoring you back to ministry. Shepherd my people. Yeah, you failed me, but that's okay, because I can use that. If you read the Old Testament, there's failure after 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 failure, and God restores it. He uses that failure to make something remarkable. He's saying, in the midst of your failure, through your godly repentance, lead my people. Because oftentimes, broken people make the best leaders. Because broken people often have sympathy and empathy and understanding. You think Peter's going to be tender-hearted and more understanding toward people who have trouble believing in who Jesus is? Of course, because he's been there. Peter knows what it's like to feel guilty, inadequate, and weak. And those are just the qualities needed to lead. So Peter's restored here. And after he's restored, we get to verse 18. And now he's forgiven and commissioned to pastor the church. And Jesus goes on to tell him this. He says, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And like it often is with Jesus, this statement is both literal and figurative. Because Peter would be led literally later in life to places where he didn't want to go. He'd be led to prison where he didn't want to go and where someone else would dress him. And he'd later be led to a cross. And historians tell us that Peter, believing he wasn't worthy to be crucified in the same way Christ would, would be requested to be crucified upside down, a place where he would stretch out his hands, where he did not want to go. But this is also a metaphor for following God. Before you met Jesus, you had the freedom to do what you wanted to do, to go where you wanted to go. But that's over now. This is a call to discipleship. 
How many of you are visual learners? Where are my visual learners at? That's me. I like illustrations. I need to see it right in front of my eyes, get a better idea. It helps me learn. And I heard a pastor down in Texas share this illustration, and I think it's super helpful, so I want to share it with you today. Um, but before we get to that, so Thanksgiving is behind us now, right? Did you have a good Thanksgiving? What was your favorite side that you ate at Thanksgiving? Just shout it out. Me too. That's my favorite. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Love it. Um, lots of good stuff. But uh, Thanksgiving being behind us also means that all the Christmas haters have come around now, right? So it's socially acceptable to start listening to Christmas music, to put your Christmas tree up, to do all the things, the festivities. Unless maybe you're one of the, there's like a few straggler, like weird people that are like, no, it's December 1st is like the cutoff. Most people, it's like, you just got to wait till after Thanksgiving. But for the most part, we've come around, so it's the Christmas season. Which means that for some of us who are irresponsible and have waited because it's cold now, uh, some of you will be using one of these to put up your Christmas lights maybe this week. Am I right? Yes? Okay. Yeah, about two weeks ago, my wife said, hey, you should probably put the Christmas lights up because it's like really nice weather and it's nice outside. And I said, yeah, I don't really want to because I'm lazy. Uh, And now that it's cold, I'm going to have to do it when it's freezing outside. Um, So I'll probably be doing that this week with one of these. Um, But when I was a child, child is a strong term, when I was younger than I am now, um, when my brother and dad and I, we put up the lights, I was always the roof guy uh, because I I don't have a fear of heights. Like I went skydiving a few years ago for the first time. I love cliffs, all the heights thing. doesn't bother me at all. But I do have a fear of ladders to a certain extent. I guess it's because I trust the people who built my house more than the people who built my ladders. I don't know. Just stability is like a good thing. But anyways, I'm going to try to face my fear of ladders a little bit for you guys here today. So I got two of these um, to help with this illustration for us today. There we go. Okay. So we've got these two options here. And here, this is the world. This is the place where we find the comforts and the luxuries and the temptations and the pleasures of this world. And it can be easy. And most of the time, it's what we want or it's what we know. And it feels good. But then we have this other option. And this is what God has for us. This is the path that we can walk up and experience all the beauty and the benefit that comes with the things of God. But here's the problem. So many of us find ourselves sitting right about here. Caught in between. With one foot on God and one foot on the world. We know that this path exists. And we want it. And it's good and it's wholesome and it's wonderful. And yet we can't get ourselves to take our foot off the world. Yeah, I know what God says. Man, I know the things. I know I shouldn't be having sex outside the marriage covenant, but man, we're committed. We love each other. It's okay. I still follow God. I'm still at church. I still pray. I don't need to worry about my drinking issues because I'm in church consistently, so it's fine. I don't need to worry about my porn habit because, you know what, I, I pray about it. People pray for me about it. It's fine. But I don't really seek accountability. We can cohabitate. I can swear, just just not around my kids. And we justify, and we justify, and we justify. And we just can't seem to let it go. But we have to make a choice because we can't keep going. At the end of the day, we can't have it both ways. 
Because these two things lead in opposite directions. And if I try to keep going, wanting both ways, at some point something's going to pop or break. Because I'm not very flexible. (laughs) And no matter how flexible you think you are, at some point you're going to run out of room. Because these lead in opposite directions. So many of us find ourselves wanting to walk up and experience all the things that come with the beauty of what God has. But we'll never be able to get there with our foot on the world. So we're going to have to make a choice. And you know what keeps us from choosing the things of God? Pride. Arrogance. A lack of accountability. We get to this self-centered place where we've convinced ourselves that we don't need anybody else telling us what to do or how to do it. Man, I'm I'm a grown man. I'm a grown woman. I don't need anybody digging into my personal life, my personal issues. I'm fine. I got it. And my friends, that is music to Satan's ears. God has put the people around you to speak lovingly into your life because they want to see you go from here to here. There's a longtime Milwaukee Brewers announcer named Bob Euchre. And I don't know much about him other than a story that he tells from when he was a little boy. His dad was from the way out in the country, kind of far away from society, not really in touch with much of what's happening. And when he was a grade school boy, they moved kind of into a country town. And so when they moved into town, his dad wanted him to have some things that a lot of the other kids had. And so one of the things he first did was he bought his son a football. So he bought Bob this football, and, you know, neither of them were from society, and so they didn't really know much about it. So they go out into the yard, and they're trying to throw it and catch it and kick it around together. And they're they're having trouble because neither of them are really good at it. They don't really know much about it. And they're just getting discouraged. And so they get ready to give up. Uh, they're getting discouraged. But then this nice neighbor, neighbor of theirs, comes out and puts some air in it for them. And it goes really well after that. <laughs> See, Bob and his father didn't know any better. And they needed the help of the people who'd been placed around them to show them the way. And the same is true for us. God has put people around us to provide love and accountability, and advice. So don't waste it. Jesus didn't leave the disciples alone. While he commissions Peter to lead the church and commissions John to testify to the truth, and each one of them is faithful to the call to ministry, he is here with them together. And they have each other. So when we're standing here in the middle, caught between the world and God, with one foot on God and one foot on the world, whether we've heeded the advice of wise counsel or not, at the end of the day, I've got to choose. And I can choose the world, and that's fine, but I've got to go there. And to do so is to turn my back on God, because if I want this, I can't have this as well. Otherwise, I'm going to stay stuck. If I want it, I've got to turn my back on God and fully commit. Or I can choose the things of God, but to do so is to repent. And to turn from my sin. And to fully commit. And that doesn't mean this is going to be easy. Because like Jesus said, before you knew me, you went where you wanted. You did what you wanted. Dressed yourself. But no, 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 no. Now things 
are going to be different. Now, you may not always like what comes on this path, but you're going to be led. And I'm going to lead you. So we have to choose. Last week, Rob posed this question coming out of John chapter 20. Does the resurrection really matter to you? Because if something really matters to you, then it will impact how you live your life. If the resurrection matters to you, then it will impact how you live your life. And one of the things that we do together when we gather each week is we take communion. And in a minute, we're going to do that together, not just yet. But there's a few reasons that we do this. And the first is to remember, to reflect on the sacrifice of Jesus and the the crucifixion, the death that he died, made perfect in the resurrection three days later. But another reason that we take the time to do this is to examine our own hearts. And for the next few minutes, I invite you to do that. Remember and reflect on the crucifixion, the resurrection of Christ, but spend some time examining your heart. In what areas of your life are you struggling to take your foot off the world? Are you still trying to manage your life on this dangerous tightrope in between? And what might it take for you to choose what God has for you and to go all the way there? And after a few minutes of reflection, Ben's going to lead us in communion today. We're going to take the elements together as a church. But let me leave you with this. If the resurrection matters to you, Will you choose the things of God? Will you accept the call to discipleship? And will you heed the words of John and the reason that he testified to the truth about Jesus? That you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. As we remember that resurrection, if it matters to us, Lord, would you open our eyes to the things that we need to see today as we examine our hearts? And most importantly, Lord, would you give us the courage to take the necessary steps to pursue you and to take our foot off the world as we pursue the call to discipleship that you've placed on each of our hearts? Lord, would you take away any pride, arrogance, ignorance, or embarrassment that might get in the way. And may we have life in the name of Jesus. In that beautiful name that we pray. Amen.